Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here for another Winging It session. We have now begun a series on church history, having finished our series on the divine service. Uh, We encourage you to go back and check out those episodes if you've not heard them yet, or sessions, I should say. Um, But now we are making our way through church history, and we're on our third Winging It session on church history. Uh, We've been loosely using Mark Knoll's book, Turning Points, um, but not sticking necessarily to it in too disciplined a fashion. Uh, The last session, we talked about the Council of Nicaea, and we're going to pick up with that and get a little bit into the Council of Chalcedon. Um, Knoll's title for this chapter is Doctrine, Politics, and Life in the World. But we would like to hit on, um, out of the gates, we mentioned we would at the beginning of the last session, what uh, Constantine and the Council of Nicaea meant for the relationship between church and state. If you think of, if you remember, the situation in which the church lived before Constantine, um, it largely faced a state that vacillated between indifference towards Christianity and hostility towards Christianity, uh, but definitely did not often exhibit a friendliness towards Christianity. And to be a Christian was... Uh, oftentimes countercultural, but often, but I guess equally oftentimes um, considered to be poor citizenship, I think you could say rather fairly. And with Constantine, we're going to be, a sh- we're going to see a shift with this, as Constantine not only makes Christianity illicit, a legal religion, but uh, one which those who wanted to climb the ladder might be inclined to consider or join in order to curry favor with um, the current people in power. This uh, was a surreal experience for the church. You have a church that had many pastors who had experienced persecution. They weren't martyrs. They hadn't died, but they had been confessors. Um, They had been injured. They had been uh, tortured, things of this nature, for their faith. Uh, Maybe denied economic benefits, things of this nature. And all of a sudden you have people who begin pouring into the church, uh, and you don't have enough people to catechize all those pouring into the church, which means a couple things. It means, A, uh, the church has a new standing in society, uh, a new status or place that it had not had before for centuries. It means, B, you have people coming into the church who uh, are being influenced by Christian doctrine, but bringing with them a lot of their... Uh, former faith, uh, philosophical presuppositions, cultural uh, givens, assumptions, things of this nature. And it also means the church now needs to navigate a very different relationship with the, cha- with the state. Um, the state has a vested interest in Christianity now that it's legal and now that it is in many ways ascendant. Um, how does it do that? Should the church just shirk this new status and say, no, leave us alone? We want, you know, we want to be the fringe. We want to be our own thing and, and just let us be. Um, should the church use this new platform? Um, and it did for what we might call social justice um, to see some of the evils of society curbed. And the church did do that. And I think in, in good ways sometimes. Um, should the church use its new standing to try to push for people to become Christians in ways beyond simply the preaching of the gospel? Uh, to what extent does the church protect this new standing? All of this uh, factors in, and I think it's very timely for our own day, as we see in the West, and particularly in America, a Christianity 
wrestling with what it is to not be ascendant anymore, to not uh, have the status it once had, to not have uh, some of the pressures at its disposal, social, political, cultural, that it could maybe use in the past, not rightly. Um, I presented in Michigan last week, and I said part of the problem is that the church took for granted its standing um, what, you know, when it never ought to. Um, the church should never be too comfortable. And so we have all these things playing in, and this really creates uh, a tension that has not been and will not be resolved, I think, until in the West, at least, until Christ returns. And that is, what is the relationship between church and state? And it's going to, de- it's going to develop very differently in the West than in the East. Um, of the, what, five early patriarchs, you've got Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, Rome— the West is going to be unique. It's influenced by one patriarch or bishop or pope um, in Rome. Um, and you're going to have a West that very stubbornly, or a Catholicism that very stubbornly refuses to become an arm of the state, uh, but in fact says it's over the state, right? The pope will crown Charlemagne eventually. But in the East, you're going to have a lot of tensions of what's the relationship between the two. And in many ways, a um, not a deification, but a... Um, an exalting of the emperor as this representative of Christ, which we'll see in the West somewhat with absolute monarchy, but still with the check of the of the church. And so, Mike, uh, you know, I know you mentioned this isn't maybe your, your go-to um, age of church history, but anything that stood out with you as you work through these two chapters, the one we discussed before and this one, um, of this relationship between church and state at this time now? I, I, Noel points out that it's also about a different kind of way of thinking between East and West, too. And so West is, uh, it may be because of the language. Um, I had a, asked a question of uh, one of our professors once uh, about the English language. And uh, I was commenting to him that I thought English history was boring. <laughs> and I said, is it because, is it, is it because English... The language, let me back up, not only that, but like, for instance, the concept of love in Greek has many different words, but we have really one. So I use the same word for the affection I have for my newborn child that I do with my favorite baseball team. I love both of them, right? And I asked him the question, does, is it because the language force us to think in one way, or is it that we, who then, for lack of a better term, create the language or use the language, are one way, and other people who use a different language are another way. And without hesitation, he said, the language changes us. And I think Noel's point here was that uh, the Latin church, the Western church, uh, one things that was very, okay, black and white to a certain extent um, not necessarily saying, okay, we know exactly the mystery of Jesus Christ, true man and true God, but just wanted this finished. Okay, what is it? What does the Bible say? What does it doesn't say? Doesn't say, and that's good. And so after Chalcedon, he makes the point that the West was like, okay, it's done, great. Where in the East, the Greek Church is much more about speculation, and so. Uh, and I wonder if that plays into a little bit with their content with, uh, th- there's geographical and political things, obviously, that allowed the the Bishop of Rome to be 
the guy in the West where you had competing centers of Christianity in the East. I'm not downplaying that. But that the West was more eager to say things are settled, that's the guy. Where in the East, they were a little bit more open to more speculation and different points of view kind of thing. And, and there's no guy who can say, I'm the guy. Yeah. I mean, there's three or four of them. And, and, and they wouldn't allow that. Um, it, it just wasn't in their DNA, so to speak, to, to have that. And so, uh, again, you had mentioned last time that uh, in Nicaea, but Chalcedon, I think even more, that the West is very unrepresented. And the East in this council, it, it was in the East, Chalcedon, um, I think on the Turkey side of the Bosporus Strait. Uh, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know, obviously, just geographically, it's, it's and that's where the heresies uh, or, or the, the debates were going. But um, the East was more representative over there. And so there's different political things. And then underneath all of that is... Leo, right, the Bishop of Rome at the time, um, is who you had mentioned his tome, or off-air you had mentioned his tome and how that's such a great, great read, Leo the Great. And he really, he did understand this Christology and was a good theologian in many respects. Um, But underneath it all is he is not going to let anybody from the East tell him that um, he has to submit to their teaching or whatever. He wants to be in control there. It seems very obvious. And so, uh, like you said, there's this, this political and this ecclesiastical thing coming together. And uh, we don't get that in, the, in, in America. We, we would never fathom, we would never fathom the, um, the Congress in the United States debating some kind of uh, theological issue, right? Or, or the president saying, we're going to call a church council. Yeah, we really need you guys to get on board here so everybody is one one religion. It just doesn't happen in our way, but that's how they did it back then. And even into, of course, uh, uh, the history of Western Europe, uh, it happens all the time, right? Where those things are just completely intertwined. Um, Luther it, appeals to the emperor days, for a yeah. council of the church. Yeah, right. and, and how many times do we hear about how... Uh, you know, Charles V or whoever is going to be easy on the reformers because he needs them politically. Right. Or, or Luther says that the prince is now an emergency bishop. Or even even the fact that the king of France is going to make a deal with the Turks uh, because yeah. <laughs> because he just doesn't like the Pope. <laughs> he doesn't like the Pope and the Habsburgs. I mean, that's just so bizarre to me. Um, uh, but <laughs> politics really does play. You, you're naive if you don't think it does. Well, and even, you know, you get to the Thirty Years' War, and the French loved Protestants so long as they weren't in France. <laughs> you know, it, uh, <clears throat> it really plays out that well, that way. And, Mike, I think you, you mentioned helpfully and, and rightly, too, um, the difference between East and West. And, and part of we have, what we have to remember with the West, too, is, and we I think we neglected to mention this the last session, but... As Constantine moves the center of power from Rome to Constantinople, which is just geographically a splendidly brilliant spot to move the capital, um, I mean, just it's defensible. It's more in the heart of the wealth and the the, the, the culture and the thought of the empire <coughs> at that time, and it survives well beyond Rome. Uh, as far I mean, the Byzantine Empire lasts for a long time, and uh, but you have. The popes in Rome, and Leo especially, 
are dealing with um, the constant threat of invasion. Um, they're on the crumbling side of the empire. And so the popes are stepping up in, in secular roles as well as ecclesiastical, whereas in the East, the patriarchs are vying for the uh, approval, the, uh, um, not patron, what do you call it? So, oh, someone not patronizes you, but the, uh, um, they want the emperor's uh, support. And uh, and so you have Antioch, Alexandria. Jerusalem becomes of, of it's more symbolic than anything. Um, but even Con- the the Patriarch of Constantinople all kind of vying for influence and power. That's just not the case in the West. And Leo, you know, can rightly look at the patriarchs in the East and say it must be nice just to think about theology all the time. <laughs> um, the barbarians are literally at the gates. So I'm also going to deal with that. And so where Leo falls back on is. We've already made creedal statements on this stuff, so I'm just going to expand on that. Whereas in the East, you have um, some of these creeds that were approved, but you had substantial portions of the population that had never been behind them. You know, Arius never went away as much as we might picture, you know, you know, they say Arius is bad and now Arius is gone. It's kind of the same as, uh, you know, um, fascism. There, there's always going to be an underlying temptation to fascism and an underlying current of fascism. Within Western culture, it's it, it's just impossible to eradicate, and uh, both on the liberal and conservative side, by the way. Exactly, exactly. It's just a natural human impulse, and so the West had kind of said, "Okay, we we came up with these creeds, or we came up with these statements. We we settled this, guys. Remember, like this is." And Leo's really going to unpack what had really been the the basic creedal stance, um, the accepted stance of the church, and he's going to lean heavily on Tertullian who was an early church father who also became, we would probably say, a heretic. He gets into Montanism, which is kind of like this hyper-spiritualism, many, in many ways akin to Pentecostalism in our own day. Questions baptism, infant baptism. Right, right. and um, uh, really overemphasizes the purity of the church as if it's a purity that the individual brings to it. But Tertullian was also brilliant. I mean, he says, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And he doesn't want Athens to have anything to do with Jerusalem as far as philosophy. And I would disagree with him with that. But at the same time, he really puts his finger on the question, which is a special gift that people have sometimes to be able to do. But Tertullian gives us the term Trinity. At least he's very important in the development of that term. And so in many ways, um, and Tertullian's a Western church father. Leo's going to lean on that too. But Leo is somewhat divorced from or removed from having to curry favor with the emperor as much like leo just wants the emperor once in a while to be like hey you guys are still part of the empire we'll help you a little bit um but he's got stuff to deal with and so maybe the a helpful thing for us to then hit on a little bit now would be and i think um mike uh noel even has a chart in here um at one point that's going to kind of hit on what develops to be we might talk of it as schools the alexandrian or the antiochian schools um, of Christology. And neither of these necessarily are heretical at the time, but both will lead to some people going overboard and, and falling into heresy because of the emphases of each. And maybe a, a simple way to summarize it, Mike, and tell me if I'm wrong, would be the Alexandrian school emphasizes Christ's deity, and the Antiochian school is going to emphasize Christ's humanity. Um, Noel calls the uh, Alexandrian school word flesh Christology. 
um, the word became flesh, emphasis on the deity. Uh, and this will get to, did Christ have one nature or two? And uh, he calls the Antiochian school word man Christology, emphasizing that the word became man, was incarnate, that he became a human being. And so it's going to be out of the Antiochian school that you'll have this emphasis on the two natures of Christ. It's out of the Alexandrian school that you'll have this emphasis on the unity of the person of Christ. And in the end, when the Council of Chalcedon is going to settle things, or attempt to settle things, no, no council ever settles everything, um, there will be rightly an emphasis on the two natures in one person. But out of this comes, uh, in the Alexandrian school, some who will fall into error, um, like Apollinaris, um, will say, well, really, the divinity of Christ replaced his human soul. Um, you'll have uh, then what will be monophysitism, uh, meaning that Christ just had one nature, and his nature was that he is, is God in flesh. The Antiochian school is going to say, no, he has two natures in one person, which is correct. But we'll have Nestorius who will fall into error and say that those two natures are so distinct that it really threatened the oneness of the person of Christ. And where this will come to a head, and, and Mike, maybe you can hit on this, but is something that was very much tied to the worship and imagery of the church. <clears throat> and uh, where Nestorius is going to get himself in trouble is he's going to say, that Christ, or that Mary is the mother of Christ, but not the mother of God. I, that Mary is Christotokos, but not Theotokos. And I sometimes have students, and in the parish I had members who would trip up on this, because some would, I would say, is Mary the mother of God, and they would think that sounds Catholic or something. But read Luther on this, and Luther is very clear on this. Um, maybe, Mike, if you could just explain for those listening... Where does the Orthodox Church, right-believing Christian Church, fall down on Christotokos or Theotokos, and why is it so important that it falls where it does? Yeah, so if you, if you <coughs> say that Mary is only the Christ-bearer, you finally end up only saying that Mary is the man-bearer of Jesus Christ, and that she only gives birth to either the physical of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, but you cannot say that she is the bearer, uh, the giver of birth to God, which at first glance, you're like, of course not. How could any human being give birth to God? But the point is not Mary. The point is who Jesus Christ is. And she bore Jesus Christ in unity, 100% true man and 100% true God. Um, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's more of a, I, I've always thought of it more as an emphasis. Why are you worrying so much about Mary when you should be worrying about Jesus Christ there? And so um, the, uh, uh, the Alexandria school rightly held on to a f what sounds like just a crazy thing to say that Mary is a Theotokos, the bearer of, of God. And, and they understood the implications of that. And I think that was, that was their gift, to understand the implications that Mary had to give. If she gave birth to Jesus Christ, which everybody agreed, then she gave birth to true God because Jesus is true God. And if, if you start chiseling away at that, 
then you chisel away at the person of Jesus Christ, and eventually you chisel away at salvation. The, the problem with the Alexandria school is the whole idea about this kind of, this idea that the logos replaces the human soul. Well, then it's just, you have a problem with, with what a human being is then. Yeah. Uh, if a human being is, a human being cannot just be flesh. When, when, when grandma dies and you put her into a coffin, that's not grandma anymore. That's, I would say it's not even a body anymore. It's a corpse. Um, without a soul, um, that, that you're, you're just dust. And I mean, the human experience, uh, just brief interruption. What is the human experience without the soul? I mean, isn't that where the best of our literature, music, I mean, our, the, the soul is where so much of humanity resides. Yeah. And I get into this a, a little bit and I may be going too far, but you have identity problems fast forward to our time when there's a lot of people who think there is no such thing as a soul and we're just a bunch of chemicals. We're just a bunch of molecules. A lot of dangerous positions. There, there's some identity issues there. Um, um, my molecules, my body, my skin, even my bones, they change. Um, you know, we replace our skin every so often as it, as it flakes away. Um, if I am only my body, then I am not the same person I was when I was 15. You have some identity problems there. Uh, uh, there, there's a lot of issues there that we don't need to go into right now, but, uh, a human being is body and soul. If, and if you want body, soul, and spirit, but we don't, we won't get into that argument right now. Um, but that, that's what really jumps out to me in the Alexandria school is the idea of the logos replacing the human soul. Uh, not necessarily that they would always put it that way, but uh, enough to know, hey, that that ain't right. That ain't right. Uh, at the same time, just so brilliant and so bold to talk about this idea of the Theotokos uh, is it, just great because if Mary does not, if Mary is not the God bearer, well, then the, everything's lost. Everything's lost. And so they held on to that. And so did Luther. And so has the Orthodox Church. And I don't mean the Eastern Church there. I mean the, the, the whole universal Catholic Orthodox Church has held on to that, and rightfully so. And I would say, uh, and I apologize for the background noise. I've been trying to keep the fire going when Maggie's not out here. Um, it's not cold. It's probably, what, 60? She, yeah, it, it's cold for... It's cold since three days ago. It was 90,000 right. 90, degrees. Yeah, but... Um, one of the things, and, and this may strike people as odd, and, well, maybe strike people as wrong, but I think if it strikes you that way, you're not listening to me fairly, is the church benefits from having different theologians and different groups with different emphases within its boundaries. Um, those who were balanced, those who um, remained within the Orthodox framework in Antioch and Alexandria benefited each other. <clears throat> it was good that Alexandria was emphasizing some very important things about Christ and that Antioch was. And you see the final statement that will come in Chalcedon. And by the way, the Nicene Creed, Mike, briefly, can you just 
we think 325. You said we should mention this. Yeah, so the Nicene Creed does not... It, it, what came out of the Council of Nicaea in 325 is a shorter version. Uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381 uh, has a version that's closer to, I think maybe exact to what, what we know of as the church. Except for the filioque. Yeah, well, yeah. And then uh, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's another council in there, at least one more, Ephesus, which did not go well. The Robber Synod. And then you finally have Chalcedon in 451, who is kind of cleaning up um, uh, w- what had transpired after after Nicaea and Ephesus. So, so the it's not like the church said, "Boom, here's a creed." They did develop a little bit. At the same time, um, you know, a little shout out to the East. Uh, be very careful about adding things to the creed. Yeah, I like that we added it, though. To be honest, because. Because it's true. You know what I mean? Like, I could get, like, feel like you can't add it because it's not true. It was added because it was true, and it was also combating the very same heresy that it was right. meant to condemn. It, it's, it's, I, I go back and forth on this one because, so the filioque, it is that, it's just in the Apostles' Creed or is it the Nicene Creed? Nicene. Too? The Nicene Creed. Um, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And um, the original just said proceeds from the Father. And uh, there was some, Arian uh, uh, flare-ups, let's say, in Spain, I believe. I mean, it was it was a problem. What if you are a German Lutheran, your great 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 relatives were Arians. Mm-hmm. I mean, Arianism really had a mission impulse and made it it dominated much of what is Western and Northern Europe for a long time. So in the West, that this flared up after Nicaea. And so the Western Church said, in order to maintain the equality, same substance, of the Father and the Son, um, <clears throat> we, they added that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. And the East had a, had a fit about you that. You guys can't just add stuff. And I, I sympathize with that. Don't. What do you, where, let me take that side. But then the Christian film says, like, we can do what we want. Yeah, we, you can you just so add whatever true. you want. Right. Um, um so, Wade, would you be in favor of us adding to the Nicene Creed today? What would I add? Hmm. <laughs> uh, one baptism for the at the, at the same time, while you're thinking about that, at the same time, on the Western side, I say, give give your brothers a break in the West. Right. You know, they're fighting areas. And like you fight. say, it's the same thing. It's not. It's one word. It's one word. And now it's easy from our point of view with the historical 2020 to go, what's the big deal? Um, you got to put yourself back into the, um, to the position of those people. So I, I go back and forth. I understand both sides, but I, I am definitely on the Western side when it finally is. So Wade, what would you, know, you add? Well, can I, I'm going to change the subject. And you know what I would, cons- I would compare it to is um, like the Lutheran confessions are good and all. Like, I, I endorse them. I even subscribe to them. So you're with me so far, Mike? What kind of subscription? Quia. Cool, very nice. Yeah, because they're... But sometimes you'll meet so people. Some, so you're guessing where, you where I'm about? going, aren't you? you? You're, guess, you're <laughs> guessing exactly where I'm going. <laughs> but you'll get, like, especially among seminarians, and uh, where, like, the confession becomes, like, the thing. Now, rather than it being, like, the, the Viva Vox, the living voice of the church confessing Christ in the gospel... Like the creed or the confession, like becomes the thing, and this, and I'll even say, like in ministry debates, and and 
I'm guessing if we talk this out, we might be in rather stark disagreement on this, Mike. But like, I am so tired of people being like AC7 or AC14. You know, clearly addresses this synodical conference situation that never existed <laughs> at Luther's time. You know, whatever the case may be. But I was going to go with the simple word go that Mary is ever virgin. Like that Luther has like a line that's not at all. It's not even what he's talking about, but he just has this thing that he puts in there. And, like, I've met people who they think that defines Lutheranism. Like, where do you stand on this? You know, and they usually are also, you know, know how frilly you are when you preside um, factors in. But but I think what it it leads to is an abuse of what the creed or the confession is trying to do. So... What I would say with that is, is, as far as Mary ever virgin, I would say I think Luther had a lot of reasons to think that, and that could be the case. But I also think like the point of the confession is to be the living voice of the church at that time. And so I think I would say with the creed, like to the East, like, dude, the creed is a good confession of the faith, and this is also a good confession. I totally agree with you. Like the West should chill and not add stuff. Um but they're fighting the good fight. I, I can't say what I would add, but I know what I would be against adding. Go pack, go. Yeah. Because I could see some churches in Wisconsin <laughs> right. having that be the last line. There, there is, uh, for those non-Wisconsin uh, <laughs> listeners, uh, I think there is, in the past, in Green Bay, has been a, a, a Roman Catholic church with a chalzable with a Green Bay right. symbol and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, th- this is one for the for a feather in the hat of those who want Holy Communion every Sunday in, in the Wisconsin Synod is that uh, Lombardi went to Mass every Sunday. So that should be good enough for us to have it once a week. Anyway, um, the, the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, I'm going to get myself in a whole lot of trouble here with everybody, but uh, I want to believe that it was true because that's what our confessions, that's what they thought. That's and what Luther thought. Th- that's what, you know, and, and that was the popular piety of the day. And I get it. I get the argument for it, but I'm a vocation guy. And Mary was a good, Mary was a good, a good wife is, is where I'm going to leave it right there. But Noel makes that point, too, that um, the the Theotokos in that time period, and I don't know what you think about this way, if this is overplayed or not, but the whole idea about, okay, you got this pagan society, uh, wherever it is, it, often dualistic, often with this male female kind of thing no. and so there's a vacuum there's yeah there's a vacuum there when you have jesus christ male the father you know uh just just uh pictured as male the church is pictured as female but it's not as prominent as the maleness of the apostles and of jesus christ and of the father and so that vacuum is filled with Mary. Sometimes I think that's overplayed a little bit, and yet I don't want to underplay that. And, and Noel does make a point by saying, okay, the Theotokos served a purpose there too, and there was the beginning of the prominence of Mary 
uh, in the church in a good way, I think. But then it obviously t- takes a darker turn with uh, co-redemptrix and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean, Mary begins to, to factor very prominently into the church's art of the day, oftentimes with Christ in the womb pictured as a king, you know, things of this nature. And Mary's connection to Christ, which I think there's so much Christian art that is just brilliant. I mean, if you can look at the Pietas, Mary holding her dead son. What I love about those is that if she would stand up, she'd be like nine feet tall. Yeah. And Jesus would be like four or five. But I mean, if you can look at that and just not be moved by the the grief of a mother. And this gets overplayed. I remember going to Germany and and being in Munich and each church would have like a, a Mary with like a a sword in her and then like one church had like Mary with like 21 swords with her and I'm like what in the world and then the, the more I thought about it I'm like well they wanted to be like the church that like best captured Mary's anguish um I had a friend once Roman Catholic friend who uh said the most Marian priests you'll meet are the most that have the least respect for women hmm. and the way he meant that is that Oftentimes, the depiction of Mary can be used to be well. This is this is uh, feminine or um, female virtue encapsulated, and it's the you know it's all these things. Now, I'm not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with that, but I do think Mary is a fascinating figure in that she, you find in almost every generation she can kind of become a lens into what's going on in the church. And I do think you're right, and Noel is probably right, that you have this balance in antiquity and in human, almost all human religion has this balance of gods and goddesses. I mean, you read Homer and, you know, there's this balancing that's going out. And so, uh, and, and I do think Lutheranism has taken an interesting term because Mary's mostly off the radar, except for the ever-virgin. And you'll get someone all worked up about that, you know. Like, if that's your, I just wonder, like, so you want to be a pastor, you're going to seminary, and that's your issue. That's a lot of money to spend to have that be your issue. But anyways, what I want to get at with that is read Luther on the Magnificat and then say Luther had no appreciation for Mary. Yeah, and, and early on, I mean, I mean, throughout his career, the Magnificat was on his mind, right? I mean, the first thing in the Warburg he does, right, is work on the Magnificat, and um, he learned that early on. And it's in Christological. His yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, not to get, again, get myself into trouble here a little no, bit. I like, but I like what we're doing. I like it at uh, 1027 at night. I may not like it tomorrow. <laughs> I, we do downplay a little bit, unfortunately, the idea of the female aspect of the church, um, and it's... Um, let's say connection to Mary. Um, I, I think we, you know, St. Paul only says it once and it's cryptic, but I think we shouldn't ignore it that, you know, this, he talks about Jerusalem as the church and, and this is your mother. Right. And we don't like the idea of mother church. And, I mean, Paul in Ephesians five, the church is the bride. Yeah. I, I, I think we downplay that. We don't emphasize that enough in my opinion. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, I mean, the idea of the maleness of the pastor and the femaleness of the church and, and the church makes this house beautiful. Um, this church is what gathers the, the, um, the chicks, uh, and teaches them and nurtures them and loves them when nobody else will. I mean, there's just, there's just a a million mother day, mother's day sermons there that you can, that you can, 
relate to the church being female. And, and I sometimes think that we, you know, we, we're kind of taking a jab at those who are so concerned about the, the perpetual virginity of Mary. At the same time, I like to take a jab at those people who are so freaked out about talking about Mary and the femaleness of the church because it may be deemed too Catholic. Well, you know what? It, it, it's scriptural, I think. It's not a huge it's not a huge issue in Scripture, but it's there. Well, and I think, you know, and we're going a little afield, but I'm enjoying it. If we're going to talk about Mary, too, in theology, one of the things, you know, we'll sometimes have theology majors at the college and who are females, and what are you going to do with it? Well, what does it matter? Like, that God has given theology to children, men and women, uh, ought to be perfectly clear from Scripture. And for the love of, I don't know what I, what love of things, what is more theological than the Magnificat? Like, Mm -hmm. this is, if there is, I think what what we see in Mary um, is captured so well in the Magnificat. My my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She knew her Old Testament. I mean, how many references to the Hannah's song and the Psalms? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they're doing when they're picturing Mary at this point. She is Theotokos. Why? Because... It's a glorification of who Christ was. And where that gets abused then by Nestorius is to try to um, diminish who Christ— well, not to explain too far how the two natures can work. And, and he's right on the two natures. Uh, but it leads to then um, a God who's very limited in his ability to save us. And people might say, well, that was back then. What does Nestorian matter now? listen to any debate about what the sacrament of communion is and does. And that's where Nestorianism raises its head today. Most American Protestants are Nestorian in their outlook when they start discussing the real presence. Um, Because what was Zwingli's original objection to the real presence of Christ? It was, well, a person can't be in more more places than one. Well, what is that? Well, Christ is a person, but he has two natures. And it's limiting Christ according to his human nature, as if the human nature can be divorced from the divine. And so if anyone ever thinks these debates don't matter anymore, Mike hit on with Arianism, and we see that with the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons in our own day. Um, I still think Islam just exemplifies um, what many who erred in the Christological debates were trying to do. If that makes sense, but go ahead. You were about yeah, to and the, and then the the payoff is sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, right? And th- that opens up a whole, which is another. where the reformed end up in their Christology too. Yeah, you know, I way to ask you a question. Um, you know, with with Zwingli and Luther, um, it's interesting to me that Luther at this time a little bit aged, tired, beat up, constipated, constipated, um, short with people. Um, he's not the nicest to Zwingli in Marburg. And I think rightfully so. Some would, would critique him like he should have been a little bit more patient and stuff like that. But he suffers no fools there. He, he, he's, it, it is, he's, he's, it seems to me that he's six steps ahead of Zwingli in that case where he's saying, listen, you know, he, he doesn't want to take the time to explain to him 
that th- this is a Christological problem. It is not a sacramental problem. It's a it's a Christological yep. problem. And I, I'm I, I don't know enough. You know more about about this than me. It, it just seems that there's something going on there with Christology, and Luther just doesn't take the time to patiently explain it. Right, and Chemnitz does. I mean, Chemnitz, to his credit, is going to be the guy who picks up the mantle for Luther on that. And do not so buy it unless you're going to read it. But Chemnitz's work on the Lord's Supper, what's his two great works, right? The Two Natures of Christ and the mm-hmm. Lord's Supper. I mean, the Lord's Sea too, but, um, but what Zwingli was doing was really undermine both the person and the work of Christ. Mm-hmm. By A, the Lord's Supper became something that was not for the forgiveness of sins, and B, he's limiting what Christ is able to do. We're finally back to that situation, as you said, to the work of Christ. If you mess up with who Christ is, you mess up salvation eventually. And and maybe you don't see it right away. And, and I, I do get a little, I shouldn't get irritated, but I do get irritated when people say, you know, the only difference between a conservative, name your evangelical Protestant denomination, and a conservative Lutheran is, well, we just disagree about baptism and Holy Communion. It's really no big deal. No, 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 no. Finally, it's Christology. And by the way, um, the evangelicals would, if they were having a podcast right now, would say the same about us. They would right. say the problem with, with, with the Lutherans is they have a problem with their, specifically their hermeneutic. I mean, to be fair, it's not like they're, they're, they're their theologians understand the problem too and are critical of us, you know, and, and, uh, you know, when we get into heaven, they will be Lutheran and everything, it'll be okay. But, (laughs) but you know what I mean? It's not like, like they're, I don't want to give the impression that they don't know that this is an issue or that this is, uh, that they're dumb dumbs and we're smart. That is not the case. And we have a lot to learn from those other denominations. But the point is you can't just say, well, some you know, let's say Wisconsin Center and Missouri Center and Lutherans believe this about Holy Communion and the Baptists don't. And really, that's the only difference. Right. No, it's not. Right. Well, and it's, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back a little bit, Mike, and if we go back to Kelsodon again now, and we've got the church-state issues in play, um, great example of church-state issues is uh, Theodosius. Um, is it the first or second wants to commune? And uh, he's trying to force his will on the church. And Ambrose of Milan, one of my favorite church fathers, um, supposedly one of the first to read silently, which was viewed as being selfish, and people were amazed. Um, from memory, did not want... he. Wa- I don't even know that he was baptized when he was elected bishop. The people just say, this Ambrose dude, he's an honest guy, he should be bishop. Uh, maybe he wasn't... Conf- I don't know. Um, but he takes a stand... You know, the emperor is not going to take communion because the emperor is in the church, not above it. And the other thing that then that's important for Chalcedon is that the church says the church establishes doctrine, not the state. And as a student of the time after Luther's death and the interims, inflatious, and the lead up to the form of Concord, that is critically important that the church decides doc or the scriptures decide doctrine right the church does it based on the scriptures it's not done by fiat and it's interesting to note in this that and i think this is to constantine's credit and i think it's also to what is it martian that who calls the, Con- the council of constantinople mm-hmm. 
the positions adapted at Nicaea and and at uh, Chalcedon did not lend themselves as well to an imperial church because the Orthodox, those who defended um, biblical Christology, also tended to be those who upheld um, the sovereignty, the freedom of the church to be the church. And it was Arius and others who thought that just as Christ was subordinate to the Father, that the church should be subordinate to the emperor. And so either Constantine and Theodosius I and II and whoever else didn't have the foresight to realize those implications, which is quite possible because the Lord knows all the things I don't realize the implications of in our own day. I mean, the older I get, the more I'm like, wow, I never got like how that would lead to this over a span of a decade or two. But um, both these councils are important because it shows um, that the church, if it's going to be the church, needs to handle its business. And it needs to not be done by fiat. It needs to not be just by done by bowing to the authority of a figurehead, but by scripture. And I think that's also the great blessing of the West, like sending a representative or Leo sending his tome and things like this is, it was not able to be dominated by one person. The Pope didn't get to Pope it up, so to speak. And I really, I mean, up to Gregory the Great, there's some wonderful, and I'm not saying Popes after that were all bad, but there's some really good guys that just had pastoral hearts. Leo and Gregory the Great are, are, are two of them. But there's this real, like, Lutheran take on this stuff of, you know, the church is going to decide this based on Scripture. And if you read Noel, but if you read the Church Fathers too, when they're, like, digging in Scripture to figure out this Christology, they do some really weird stuff with Scripture. Like, when you're looking at Proverbs to figure out Christology, even though, like, I get the connections there, that's not how I think any Christian today would do it. In, in a mainstream, like, you know, whatever. But end of the day, like, they did get, like, okay, we're going to have to quote some Bible verses. We're going to have to make biblical arguments. And I think there's something to this for Lutherans for remembering the fathers didn't operate as differently as we think they did. Um, end of the day, there was this real, even even those who, you know, in in the, the East is saying, we got to put this in terms that people can understand because Koine Greek is not the Greek that people were speaking at that later, you know, a few centuries later. And the West is like, you're using these Greek terms. We're all, we got to put this in Latin over here. Mm-hmm. And there's this emphasis to realize we got to put this in terms that apply today that people can understand, which is also important for the church. How do we translate these things and concepts? And this is where, you know, you can't preach. If you, you know, I want I'm going to preach this Sunday. I'm going to look up what Walther or Luther said. That's great. But do not preach that same sermon because you're not preaching to the same people. The church always has to learn how to um, translate. But there is this big emphasis to say, how do we get these biblical concepts and put them in a language that no one spoke when they originally came up with them? But Yeah, I think that's, there, especially with the Latin and the Greek, it, there's not a one-to-one there with um, the, the concepts that were used for Christology. Uh, both in Nicaea and then and then later in Chalcedon, and so there almost had to be an agreement. Like we agree that this Latin word is going to be the equivalent to the Greek word, but only when we're talking about Christ. Um, and and sometimes you just have to do that, right? And and that's such a difficult thing that we haven't been able to replicate 
uh, in the dialogues between Lutherans and, and Roman Catholics. You know, what, what is the definition of grace? We still have a different definition of grace, um, even though we're using the same word. And so that, that becomes problematic. Language is finally only um, an approximation uh, of what's going on there. And, and I don't mean that in a relativistic way, but it's, it's just the reality of, of the matter. <laughs> And so you got to be very clear to define your terms and, and, and all the rest. And I think that is a, um, we better not go too long, but that's just a, a really important point, Mike, that you bring up is how many people think about when, when we're talking to someone else from another denomination today and you mention grace or you mention justification or you mention salvation, that we stop and say, what do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? And we're all speaking the same English. But to know, well, what do you think you're being saved from? Who do you think is giving you grace? What is the grace being given to you delivering, or what is it to be used for? Um, I think this is something that we should be inspired by in the early church, that so early on they recognized the need to really make sure everybody is speaking the same language. And that was extremely difficult. And there is, I'm, someone could rightly say, a bit of an authoritarian aspect to it that the church just then defines, this is what we mean by this. But to recognize if we're going to truly confess, if we are going to be in fellowship, if we are going to um, give praise to the same Christ, we need to kind of know we mean the same things by that. And I think there's a lot in our own day that we would benefit from. And I talked about this presenting on apologetics. That when we talk to our neighbor, be they Christian or not, to just be able to say, what do you mean by that term? And I think that the church realized that and spent so much time dealing with that as a testimony to our uh, as Christians, our understanding that Christ is the Logos, that he is the Word, and if he is the Word, we need to make sure that we, all, we are all expressing who he is um, with words that we mean similar things by, that this is a, you know, I mean, post-modernity is right on this in many ways, uh, that words are for most people, words are not just this universal thing that they all mean the same thing and they're attached to the same thing. And so to understand that um, that when we use the same words, that we're confessing the same realities, I think is what the church was trying to get after. Yeah, I think that's that's super important. And just maybe we can end on this. That has nothing to do with Calston, but, um, you know, just the fact that you know, Jesus is equated with the word, the logos, which has more, uh, there's more meaning than just the English word, word. Um, but words matter. And if you're going to know reality, you need to know words. And so this is where I think sometimes some postmoderns will take a wrong direction and say, throw their hands up and say, well, words just don't, they're so detached from the author that, that, that we can't really know any meaning at all. I would argue that 
the more words you know and the better you're acquainted with words in different languages and stuff that's how you get acquainted with different cultures and different points of view and how you can communicate and how you can for lack of a better way to say it communicate with reality yourself um so uh when when my sophia wade has a sophia too my sophia who's going to be in fourth grade complains that i make her read um i say um you know, uh, how did God create the world? Don't say power. And she says the word. My Sophia's go-to answer is his almighty power. <laughs> almighty power. Um, the word. And uh, who is the word? Jesus. And how does he come to us? The Bible, which is made of words. Maybe you should know words then, right? You should read in words. Maybe this is this is this is really, this is more than just, me trying to make you get a good grade so you pass fifth grade or fourth grade or whatever it is but this is how you're going to be a human being and and uh deal with reality and deal with other people uh everything's in words kind of thing and so uh they matter they matter and they matter to those people in nicaea and chalcedon and i'm so thankful that that they mattered to them so that we have this faith that's been handed down to us. And, and I love the creeds because they're my pledge of allegiance in the sense that uh, in the same way that our pledge of allegiance to the flag in the United States of America says, I have a freedom and that freedom wasn't free. And so I appreciate the blood that was shed for this. Uh, the creed even more so says, I have a, a greater freedom, freedom from sin and death. And it just didn't come out of nowhere. But there's people who struggled with this and, and shed more blood than even uh, American because soldiers. Because Christ shed blood for them. And, and it, it matters that I stand up with Athanasius and Nicholas and Constantine and Ale- you know, all these other these great heroes of the faith. Except maybe Constantine wasn't. We're not sure yet. We're, you know, I'm going to count them. And... Uh, and I stand with them and say, you know, I believe this and I confess this, and this is my freedom, um, my freedom from sin, hell, death, and the devil. And I'm so glad that we in our day don't have to fight as much as they did because they fought this battle for us. And I think if just a closing thing with Chalcedon, you know, the importance that we remember then that they had all these fights over Christ being one person with two natures, and he had a divine nature because he could only save us as God. As Mike said, if he saved me, he might save my temporal life, but he can't save me eternally. But that he also had a human nature because he became man to save us, to set us free. And so at the end of the day, as we said in the previous winging it, it all boils down to that wonderful phrase in the Nicene Creed. And I hope you think about it uh, next time you say it, that all this was for us and for our salvation. And it's in that for us and it's in that for our salvation that we can truly go forward and let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. I set them up. Another round, one more round won't get me down.
crashed and my babe began to fuss and I said, honey, honey, I don't care what people are thinking. I'm not drunk.